Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is about giving Canadians an opportunity to weigh in at a really pivotal time. Conservatives are united. We are the only option. I'm saying to people that are separatists in Alberta, don't waste your time with the Maverick Party. We need a party that isn't left or right, but just true north. I'll tell the people of Canada that if you want a real plan, then the only option in this election for you is the Liberals. So many people are wondering why this selfish summer election. Justin Trudeau wants to grab power. This is a historic moment we are living through. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and political platforms that are created by 10 people in a backroom somewhere. Today on the show, the two topics that will be dominating the two debates this week. It's the show after Labor Day weekend, the holiday designed to celebrate workers. Let's talk about how parties are vying for their votes and promising to grow the Canadian economy for them post-COVID-19. And climate change. After one of the hottest summers the planet has ever experienced, are we finally going to get a government that is ambitious enough to address this or nah? Joining me today, we have a brand new backbencher, Caroline Elliott, freelance writer and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic, is back. There's only two weeks left on this election. (laughs) Thank God. And Jessica Nsandu, senior consultant at State and co-founder of Boz News. What up? Same old. Same old. <laughs> There's 12 days left till Canada's 44th election and way too many things to talk about. Y'all ready? Born ready. So there are a few good things that have come out of this pandemic, and one of them is the spotlight on workers. While some of us were able to continue our work from the safety of our homes, or closets in the backbenches case, many frontline workers were not so lucky. So first, shout out to them. Couldn't have done all of this without you guys. Thank you for the food, the packages, the deliveries, and literally keeping the engines going at great personal sacrifice. During the pandemic, many workers saw their hours rolled back as companies experienced declines in revenues linked to lockdowns. As a result, those workers lost their eligibility for benefit plans that often included financial help for medications. The federal leaders have ideas, specifically around employment insurance. During a campaign stop in Welland, Ontario this past weekend, Justin Trudeau promised to expand hiring and worker support programs, as well as a tax credit for construction workers who travel or relocate for employment. Erin O'Toole promised to double the Canada workers' benefits, which is equal to a raise of $1 per hour for a low-income earner. Jagmeet Singh offers EI you can opt into on a day-to-day basis and pledged a $20 minimum wage and 10 days of paid sick leave. Murad, how are we feeling about these promises? Who seems to have the strongest plan to help workers and create better jobs? So it's interesting because they're almost... Two separate questions when you think about the way that work is evolving. I say they're two separate things because, in a sense, the kind of good 
jobs of the future, the jobs that, for example, the Liberal Party of Justin Trudeau has been talking about for six years, you know, a lot of the the financing and the, the loans and grants and the other money that the government puts behind companies, those go to companies that are creating knowledge economy jobs, you know, jobs that require a certain level of education, post-secondary education. Uh, they are high paying. Generally, that's the target. That is one end of the workforce, the labor force of the economy. The other of it is sometimes people who are being displaced by the things that those knowledge workers are creating. And so that there's a little bit of a disconnect there, I think, because you know you have platforms and politicians talking about uh, growing the economy, innovation on the one hand, uh, you know, encouraging this sort of tech revival that we're seeing in Canada, and on the other hand, talking about bringing gig workers into uh, the social safety net, class of worker into the system that we've always had for regular employees. In terms of the promises, you know, a lot of this is still relatively vague beyond the actual pandemic period. And that I think is the important distinction is because it's unclear how much of that will last beyond the sort of recovery phase. So you mentioned gig workers, and perhaps for the first time ever, there's been an acknowledgement of the plight of gig workers and their need for federal support. So I'm going to quickly run through the plans here. Conservatives say that they would make gig worker employers contribute to savings plans that are equivalent to CPP and EI premiums into a new portable employee savings account. The liberals are offering EI to the self-employed. They're also promising to end the miscategorization of, quote, self-employed people if they are, in fact, gig workers, which basically sounds like the liberals are trying to place the onus on corporations to support working people. Notably, the NDP platform doesn't seem to mention workers as explicitly. Their rhetoric about how liberals and conservatives are no friends to working people is strong. The platform also nods at people living paycheck to paycheck and the stress of precarious work. It promises to, quote, binding service standards through a new service guarantee, whatever that is. But the word gig only shows up on their platform once. Jaskaran, what's the political calculation in focusing on gig workers this election? And and similar to what I asked Murad, how effective do any of these policies seem? Yeah, I'm actually surprised that gig workers haven't been a bigger issue this election. Uh, this was one issue I was looking at closely because I, I really did think this would be something the NDP hammers on. Considering the pandemic we just came through, uh, well, actually, we're still in. What am I even talking about? Uh, the the <laughs> pandemic, we're still in. Oh, my God. Um, if only. Yeah, if only. <laughs> <laughs> we saw up front uh, and very close how, you know, traditional kind of industries and, and jobs and workers' rights and all these things, uh, there's been considerable upheaval. Uh, and gig work uh, has continued. And in many ways, it's, it's gig workers that had been kind of continuing to propel and, and push uh, a lot of facets of the economy that we relied on, right? Like things like deliveries and and, and people kind of doing the uh, unpleasant frontline type work that where they're exposed to transmission of COVID. Now, uh, out of all this, who do we hear from most directly on gig workers? And it's the conservatives. And their approach to it, if not being good or perfect, if you talk to like union folks or experts uh, that watch the gig industry, they're at least trying to address it with something, uh, the savings account. Now, the problem is, and, and unions have been very clear on this uh, in response to it, uh, the problem is, is that what we should be doing instead of, you know, kind of creating these two classes of workers is 
uh, bringing in gig workers into kind of, you know, traditional protections that are provided to uh, employees. And that's kind of missing, like who's, who's really owning that and making it a center of it and communicating it effectively. Because right now, no one really is. It kind of exists on the peripheries of maybe the liberals and the NDP's language, but no one has really come out front and center with it and forcefully uh, either push the conservatives on it or, or kind of spell out their own specific gig worker oriented solutions. And, and, you know, coming from a community you know, where, uh, you know, like something like the taxi industry, for example, con- you know, experienced such considerable disruption. And disruption is not a cool word uh, for folks that kind of experience <laughs> the other end of it. Uh, and the tech bros will high five each other talking about disruption. But that that destroyed families, right? Like families I know. Uh, and a lot of the entryways for new Canadians to kind of building a life for themselves have disappeared because of the gig economy. Uh, and so what are we doing to protect those people uh, and, and support them? Well, I find it fascinating, too, that none of the parties have actually defined gig work. And, and I want to note that Statistics Canada is currently working to develop a coherent framework for defining and collecting information on gig employment. But Caroline, what does it say that our politicians are talking about gig work but not being clear about what that even is while pitching these ideas? Well, it's possible that they don't even know. <laughs> um, I do think the Liberals, for example, <laughs> delving into the way we define self-employed versus gig, gig worker and that sort of thing, I think that's a good thing. It's a step. But it's also so interesting to me because people are really choosing to participate in gig work. And, and it gets this reputation, and, and probably rightly so, for not being great on on workers' rights and those kinds of things. And, and I think that that's a fair characterization. But at the same time, uh, on the Sunshine Coast here in BC, which is a big tourist destination, there's seniors who are out there volunteering to work at the local restaurants to fill the jobs to keep the restaurants open because they literally cannot hire people. So it's just interesting that the gig economy is supposed to be so bad for workers. And, and I do believe that by a lot of definitions, it is. But for some reason, people sure seem to like work there. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of interesting. So I, I think there's something about the flexibility and the self-direction of those roles that people really want. Uh, at the same time, it's balanced against the fact that they're not really well protected in like labor codes or in terms of EI or CPP and those things. So uh, it's, it's something that I, I was happy to see the conservatives uh, come out and, and acknowledge as a deficit and, and try to tackle in their own way, whether it's enough is, is fair for debate. But the fact that they brought it up, put it front and center for people on the to right to start thinking about too. I think there was some agreement. The NDP have been a little bit weak on that file and, and a little bit of surprise that they haven't been more uh, proactive on it. Uh, they talk about the fact that they're the, the party that supports working people, but at least for, and I'm going to branch a little bit into more traditional work. I know we were talking about gig economy things. But I mean, I have two brothers. One of them's a, in the trades. The other one is uh, in construction. And those guys, like they're saying like, no one's talking about us. And the NDP sure isn't talking about us. I feel like they lost that sort of labor element of their party or a good chunk of it a long time ago. I'm just not sure it's as big a part of their sort of political calculations as it used to be. It's true, right? There's there's a certain uh, group of people uh, who choose to work in the gig economy. Like that is incredibly true. Uh, and there's a certain uh, certain group of people where... Uh, they they want the flexibility of the gig economy because you know they got other things that are going on and they want to be able to take a couple of rides when they can and build some supplemental income. Uh, but the, I think the key word there is is supplemental, uh, and I think a lot of uh, companies in the space, uh, as well as gig workers, have always looked to these things as a supplement to your more traditional ways of operating. 
you know, food delivery apps, for example, uh, will be very clear that, look, we were always supposed to be a supplement to dine-in. Like, we were always meant to be a supplement to folks coming and doing takeout orders. We were not necessarily designed to be the only way to get your meal from a restaurant. And COVID has made that a very different landscape in which these things operate in, right? So gig workers, it kind of shifted away from just being a supplement to other things you're doing to, for a lot of folks, the only thing they had available, and for a lot of uh, players at our industries or our verticals within like, you know, the, the innovation economy, that started seeing themselves as well, like, you know, holy shit, <laughs> we're the bread and butter for a lot of these folks now. We're not, we're no longer just in the peripheries, like one of my many different line items and like their revenue stream. Um, and I think that probably becomes more, you know, might become more normal or we just, you know, uh, escalated the speed in which this was going to happen. And, you know, the type of protections we provide these gig workers uh, has become more important now than ever as we've, you know, warped speed uh, in the way that these things have shaped over time. But I'm pretty sure a lot of gig workers, like, come from, like, marginalized communities, right? Like, and so they need to be offered uh, a certain level of protection, even if they're kind of, like, choosing to be in this position. Yeah, I think you're onto something because I feel like there's a cultural shift in the labor force that people can't quite yet pinpoint but are trying to address in this election and and struggling to like i was thinking uh, like i went to a, a new salon lady recently because my old salon lady quit and decided to become an uber driver because she felt more safe there and thought it would provide her a more stable income after the lockdown like created a start stop start stop system for for her place of business and i thought that was fascinating because she has young kids and, and she felt safer working as an Uber driver than she did as as a person in a salon. So there's definitely a shift happening. Um, Murad, do you think the politicians are able to get to the core of it at all? Do you think they can in- encompass like all the different things that are happening in the labor force? I think what Carolyn was saying about the NDP is interesting. If you look at some of what they're proposing in terms of pharma care, you know, eye care, some of the other social safety nets that they're suggesting... The sort of primary benefit of those systems would be to people who do not have traditional employment currently, right? Because typically most employers for people who are in good, in sort of higher paying jobs tend to provide those benefits to begin with. The NDP isn't framing this as if you are self-employed or if you're a gig worker, you know, we're taking the cost of pharmacare off the table by providing a federal plan. It may just be an issue of the sell rather than the actual uh, meat of the platform. I, I think it's perfectly true to say that there are workers who don't necessarily connect those dots and it's incumbent on the party to connect the dots for them. I think it's really interesting that none of the parties are sort of, and and remember, again, you know, labor is a sort of split jurisdiction, depending on the industry between the feds and the provinces. So there's a little bit of that. But what a lot of gig worker organizations, uh, unions want is a classification fix in the law. Uh, And I found it very interesting that the conservative account is actually called an employee savings account, uh, which is an interesting thing to call your account when, uh, you know, if the intention of the account is to emphasize that they're not, in fact, employees um, by creating a parallel system. So the language is also confused. Now, I think we have to make allowances for language and nuance, this kind of stuff in election campaigns, or rather, I wish we didn't have to, but I do think we do. Like (laughs) these platforms are produced by teams of like 10 people in a back room somewhere, you know, they're not going to be perfect, but there's sort of distinct conversations happening about like affordability and jobs and like, uh, you know, pandemic response and whatever else. And like at the core of it, you have a workforce 
that does things so that you can buy products and services that pays taxes. Like none of these issues are distinct from the labor force, even if the parties don't necessarily talk about them in those ways. Rod brought a really good point. Uh, and here's where I think the NDP just needs to do a better job of communicating their relation with workers. Uh, because there, there is like this, I don't want to say tension, but there's been this longstanding chatter, especially with Jagmeet's uh, running of the party, that you have like two different camps within the NDP. And I don't want to make like a false dichotomy here of any sorts, but you have like this urban, you know, downtown Toronto kind of, you know, class of the NDP, socialist, dissocial democratic kind of movement that exists in like urban centers. And then you still have like the traditional base of like your unionist, union, sorry, uh, membership, traditional industries like manufacturing or whatever in places like Hamilton and Windsor. And you have like this this growing kind of tension as the former starts growing in prominence, right? Like this urban class of like the NDP. And they have different priorities, right? Like they're not going to see eye to eye on a lot of climate stuff, for example. But there's different ways in which the NDP can continue to own the labor front. And it comes with you know, articulating stuff on pharmacare. I saw like an online ad where the NDP was pushing the pharmacare stuff. Like, you know, Trudeau, he's never going to deliver it. Uh, and, and there's a reason why it disappeared from the platform this year, uh, whereas it existed in like budgets in the past or promises in the past. And you can't trust the liberals to provide these types of solutions that are beneficial to workers. And the NDP will. And I think that's just one way uh, that the NDP just needs to continue to ensure that they're differentiating themselves with their, their competition, because both uh, the conservatives, you know, they think they obviously have a shot without that blue collar worker and, and the liberals who have been courting unions for a very long time. Uh, the NDP just needs to more clearly articulate that so that they're not just continuously pushed into like this urban kind of elite category and not elite, but like this urban kind of socialist category uh, away from the traditional base in the unions. I want to focus for one second on women because the unemployment rate at the moment in Canada is at its lowest level since March of this year at 7.5%. But according to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce's She Recovery Project, women aged 25 to 54 lost more than twice as many jobs as men during the pandemic. According to an analysis produced by RBC, nearly 100,000 working age women have left the labor market since the pandemic started. And to put that in perspective, that would be like every single person in a city the size of Red Deer, Alberta, dropping out the job market in one year. Caroline, you know, to continue our conversation about like, you know, an inclusive and equitable approach to labor issues, are any of the policies that the parties have pitched so far uh, designed to help women, for example? I think that just generally speaking, um, the best thing you can do for workers of any kind and women uh, right there with them is is get a fired up economy and get this thing, get this like train moving, right? And, and I think that's where like I want to see plans from all the parties about what specifically they want to do in that regard. Like not to single out the Liberals, but we just saw like our economy shrink. It was only G7 country uh, in the last quarter to actually shrink. Um, and, and I look at that and I think, okay, you say what you want in your platform. You talk about like firing up the economy, you talk about supporting women or workers or whatever you call it. But like when the rubber hits the road, are you actually going to be able to, to, to get this thing booted up again? Um, likewise with the NDP and I'll, I'll just single them out, I guess, just for fun. But like you look at their supports and a lot of it is going towards things that are worthy, you know, worthy endeavors, transit, affordable housing, those kinds of things. But you also need to have a plan for private sector investment because that's at the end of the day where the jobs come that provide the biggest tax base to allow government to do even more stuff. So business investment in Canada, in particularly in uh, equipment, uh, R&D, those kinds of things has been flat to falling for 
better part of a decade. And if someone has a plan to uh, get that number moving upwards, like step forward now, because we've literally everything has been tried. The conservatives tried tax breaks. The liberals tried tax breaks. The liberals have tried targeted investments. The conservatives are not promising targeted investments. Every government seemingly has some kind of minister or person responsible for red tape production. Regulatory issues are a major concern for business. That hasn't helped. A lot of corporate Canada has been saying for quite a while that the government over the last six years and now in the election, none of the parties are necessarily putting forward a growth strategy or a prosperity strategy, which is basically how do we make the economy bigger? Uh, and if we make the economy bigger, we can afford to do more things because there'll be more tax revenue. Most of what's in the party platforms, in theory, could make the economy bigger because it gives workers and consumers more money. And when they spend money, they buy products and services, that money goes into businesses, that grows the economy. But consumption-driven recovery isn't, you know, there's a, sort of a cap on it, like how much money do you have to spend? There's also, Canada is a huge exporting nation, supporting exporters to sell more to other parts of the world, creating things like intellectual property and data, which have value. We're now finally seeing all of the parties engaged on those issues, uh, but they're engaged at a very 30,000-foot level right now. and honestly, as a poster once said to me, you can't sell super clusters at the door. Like that stuff does not sell to the retail voter. And understandably so. I think it's interesting that the conservatives have come out, at least from what industry reaction, what they seem to see as a strong innovation policy. Uh, the liberals have a six-year track record of helping to put money into the tech sector that they can run on. The NDP have promised to create a, quote, startup culture in Canada, which I'm awaiting details of. I wish there were clearer growth plans. There was more clear cause and effect in the platform. So we will put this money into this sector, and this is how it'll make it competitive. At the moment, we're still very much in the stage on all sides, frankly, of we will give money to X, Y, and Z. Cross your fingers, hope for the best. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Madam Speaker, point of order. What's your point of order, Jess Grin? The crazy protesters. Oh no, do we have to? <laughs> I don't know, but kind of forced to, I feel like. Let's be clear here. I think from a lot of footage uh, and analysis, forensic analysis of these videos done by myself <laughs> and others, uh, is that uh, many of these protesters, or what Trudeau would call a mob, uh, are PPC supporters who follow the orders of Maxime Bernier. And I I've seen some conversation over the last little bit about PPC. Well, let's just ignore those guys. 
they don't deserve our attention. And I think that's the wrong way to go about this because for a lot of folks, especially folks from racialized communities, for example, we cannot afford to ignore PPC. Uh, And a lot of these protesters have been shouting out racist things and violent things. And this is a real sentiment that exists in this country, albeit it may be a fringe, but ignoring it doesn't actually solve it. It's not a point of order, but it is a a red flag. I'm going to call it a red flag and leave my thoughts in my brain. Flag it for later. Flag it for later. (laughs) Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Murad? Continuing in the grand tradition uh, of fellow backbencher Jason Markasov, I'd like to... uh, dismiss uh, or banish two words from our election lexicon. All right, I'm ready. Secretly and quietly. If something is in a party platform, a party is not proposing to do it quietly. It's proposing (laughs) to do it. I know the platforms are really long. They're like over 100 pages in some cases. I know it takes a lot of time to read, but if it is in the platform, there's not some like nefarious secret scheme to do it. They're telling you they're going to do it. What do you want, a parade? But Murad, platforms are written by 10 people in a back room somewhere. It is a secret. (laughs) Sure, but then they're released to the public and the public's job is to read the damn things. Listen, it's not a point of order, but I think the backbench needs to come out with like a dictionary of banned words in Canadian politics at this rate because we have too many. I'm on board. (laughs) I'd like to raise a point of order. What's your point of order, Caroline? I want to talk about our debate deficit. There's people out there who lament that, you know, we never talk about the issues. But, you know, I have friends who get there like and this is like not even just an exaggeration is real. Like I have friends who get their entire election news from Jagmeet Singh's TikTok account, like actually. So it's like last election, the prime minister doesn't show up at debates. He's like, I'm just not coming because like I want to go do something else or whatever. Uh, And so this time around, we're rewarded for that with like one English language debate. And I won't even get started on the fact that we have two French language debates. Like that's just not even a place I want to go right now. But I want to know, like, how's it acceptable? Like, how are people okay with taking like the measure of the man uh, you know, in, in this case, men, and in saying, like, apparently this is the most important election since, like, World War II, according to Justin Trudeau, and we get, like, one debate to, like, get a sense of this. It's not a point of order, but it is a very valid rant that I share. Like, the upcoming English language debate has nothing on foreign policy. Does the rest of the world just not exist in Canada? In fairness, Canada doesn't exist to the rest of the world, so I think we're <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Okay, look, we cannot talk about economic recovery without talking about climate change. I mean, we can. The leaders have been doing so during the election campaign trail so far, but we shouldn't. Trudeau called an election a mere week after the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report that predicted a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global average temperature by 2040. That's 10 years sooner than previously predicted. Some of the changes from climate change are irreversible. Sorry if you didn't know, according to the report. But they could be slowed down with ambitious action. That's the word I want to hone in on, ambitious. This summer in BC alone, 569 people and 1 billion marine animals perished during a heat wave. The prairies are experiencing an extreme drought while sea ice in northern Labrador has hit its lowest level in 50 years. There is historic and devastating flooding happening south of the border as a result of Hurricane Ida. Climate anxiety has set in, yet no one is talking about it constructively this election campaign. For the first time in more than a decade, all of the major parties are proposing some form of a price on carbon as part of their election platform. 
all to varying levels and executions. Trudeau always says, a serious plan for the environment is a plan for the economy. Um, so where is it? And why doesn't it constructively include the energy sector? So Caroline, before we get into the specifics, let's start with a big question. Why hasn't this election been about climate change so far? Well, it's an emergency, but first, an election. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like, this report comes out, oh my God, like we need to do stuff. We need to do it like right away. We need to do it urgently. It needs to be big and real. And like, you know, first, let's spend like a whole bunch of weeks like talking about other stuff. And and then the whole thing is just bizarre. Um, But, you know, here in BC, like it's obviously, like you mentioned, it's a, it's a huge issue. Like not only are we the site of the big wildfires, we're the site of the heat dome. We're also like home to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which has made the whole issue very awkward for the Liberals. Um, we're home of LNG facilities, which Jagmeet Singh will like, he literally, like, I don't know if you've watched videos, like you should Google Jagmeet Singh on LNG. Like he will not say where he stands, which I think is like actually quite amazing for a leader to be able to get away with that. Like if I was a tenacious reporter, I would just follow him around asking him every day until finally he like answered the question. <laughs> Because it's important. And then, so anyway, I'm, I, from a BC perspective, it, it is huge here. Like people talk about it a lot. And like, even this summer, we're sitting out for dinner in the interior when we were on holidays and like literally ashes raining from the sky onto our food. Like it was, it was gross. And I think it became like, it went from an abstract issue to like a real deal, like, oh my God, like it's happening <laughs> kind of issue for a lot of people. I think I'm also going to make t-shirts that now say it's an emergency, but first an election. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the motto of this campaign. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Um, Yeah. And, but like in terms of the proposed plans, it's so, it's so interesting, right? Like they're all putting out like lots of times when they talk about it, they, they talk in terms of targets and and it's always put in terms of like how many percent below 2005 levels by 2030. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the liberals used to say like, we're going to reduce emissions by 30%. And like, and that I think was in keeping with the. Yeah. Someone please correct me, but it's I think that was in keeping with the Paris, with the Paris yeah. climate agreement, right? So, the Conservatives were like, you know what? Like, we need to like get with the century here and like and get on board with the climate change train and and get real about policies. So they're like, we want thirty percent too, and the Liberals were like, oh crap, like, okay, then we want like forty or forty five percent, and then the NDP is like, well, we're supposed to be the climate people, like we're going to go to 50. And then the Greens are like, well, we really are the climate people. So now we're going to 60. Like, (laughs) like it's literally, I mean, I don't know what actually rolled out in that order, but like when you look at it next to each other, that's what it looks like. Right. And, and it sounds like, like an auction when you're here doing your These are the 10 people in the back room all talking what's, to each other. What's the prize? And so like to me, like I look at that and I'm like, okay, so everyone has different numbers, but like let's just get real and say, like, what's credible? Like, what are people actually even have the faintest hope of achieving? And there was a, a report that came out by Environment and Climate Change Canada who said, like, based on all measures in place today, what we're on track for, best possible scenario is 19%. Mm-hmm. Like 19. And people are talking like 60. So let's talk about the liberal plan first. In theory, they should have a leg up, right? They fought and won the battle for a carbon price at the Supreme Court in March. They've since increased their emissions reduction targets to 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. They have new regulations like a zero emission vehicle mandate. They want 50 percent of car sales to be these vehicles by 2030. They've got a clean electricity standard and a declining cap on oil and gas emissions. Murad, we're still so far from achieving our targets. I'm still waiting on their promise to plant 2 billion trees. Like, is there anything in their plan this year that makes us confident that they have the ambition the IPCC says we need? I'm going to disrupt the form here because uh, you're the climate reporter. You tell me what's in the platform <laughs> that gives you hope they'll hit the target, if anything. Uh, very little. 
It's the same stuff. They've got a higher target, but no new policies, right? And Trudeau says he's on track to reduce emissions by 30%. His own ministry, his own environment and climate change ministry says that even under a fantasy best case scenario where we get our shit together, one that takes into account policies under development that are not even yet in place, Canada's emissions will only be half of what we're aiming for. And we're talking about irreversible climate change impacts now at this point. We're talking about slowing them down or learning to live with them. Canadian emissions are up by 21 percent since 1990. That's more than almost every other developed country in the world. These are not realistic targets or policies or ambitious at all. I'm happy we got to let you rant for once. Um, <laughs> it's me doing it. I think there's an interesting thing here about the short term and, and the sort of long term, right? Because as you say, parties are promising increasingly ambitious targets, but not necessarily laying out the budgeting to get there. And there's this like, depending on the platform, depending on the policy after sort of like 2030, between 2030 and 2050, that's like question mark. It'll happen somehow. A lot of it is betting on technology. So for example, the uh, both the liberal and the conservative platforms uh, are heavily focused on sort of the development of new technology that will reduce emissions or make existing industries more efficient. Now, as a, you know, often tech reporter, I do a lot of this stuff is being worked on and there is promising development happening in areas like small modular reactors, like carbon capture and so on. But, you know, a lot of that stuff, the economics of it just don't make any sense at this point. But I think that like, you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, that, you know, the, the targets are certainly one way of gauging ambition, mm-hmm. but so is a realistic understanding of what the combination of, you know, technology, pricing, regulation can achieve on any given metric. This is the first election in a while that we have a serious climate plan from the Conservative Party. Remember that Andrew Scheer, the leader before Aaron O'Toole, unveiled a climate plan without any targets for greenhouse gas reductions. Aaron O'Toole, though, he wants to meet Canada's Paris commitment. That's the original 30% emissions reduction target, which is now outdated because the IPCC says we need to do way, way more. Their biggest idea is to replace Canada's carbon price, which they hate, with a credit scheme in which each consumer's carbon price payments would be banked in a personal account and returned to fund purchases of apparently low emissions products. So they don't want any of the money from this carbon price system coming back to the government. They want it to go to you, but this banking system seems odd and we don't exactly know how it will work. Jessgren. Yes. Do the conservatives face an uphill battle here? Their targets are the least ambitious among the parties, and they have a climate-hesitant base and a climate-delayed past to reckon with, after all. Look, they're pickup trucks and get up any hill. <laughs> all right? Damn it, I thought we'd go through diesel, one episode without pickup trucks. Diesel-powered pickup truck can conquer any hill in its path. I think it's kind of like a strange twist. The conservatives are probably like the most realistic in terms of kind of like the doomsday we were talking about, that we're never going to be able to solve this issue. Uh, but then also not doing enough. Uh, and, and, I, and I think they're trying to get away with the bare minimum uh, kind of commitments uh, in this weird system that doesn't make sense to anyone uh, and hopefully just confuse people in the fine print uh, and so that we move on and just leave it at that. And I think them getting to the Paris commitments is probably a big leap for them internally. But it's it's definitely not enough, especially when held up against what you know experts or, or those in the space are demanding from government. 
And, you know, Caroline was making the joke of, you know, we've seen this escalation of 30 percent emissions reduction to 45, I think is what the liberals are at, to 50 to 60. Uh, consensus seems to be amongst, um, you know, the activist space or those that are watching the space closely, the environmental space, that 50 percent and above is the litmus test on whether or not uh, a party or a government is serious about emissions reduction. Uh, so the Conservatives fall well below that, and, and the Liberals fall below it as well. And the NDP and the Green Party, which still exist, I believe, um, <laughs> are, you know, meet, meet or exceed it. Uh, and, and we're talking about whether or not parties are considered this as, as a serious matter. And I think it's a precarious position that uh, obviously the Liberals are in because they want to try to play both sides of the fence on this issue. The Conservatives less so because I, I think they're a little more upfront in that the economy is far more important to them than the environment if pushed and nudged on this. And that puts um, the NDP and uh, again, the Green Party, you know, if they exist, um, in a better position to fight on this issue. The only people kind of providing you a reasonable solution here uh, while also maintaining the structure of a traditional party is the NDP. And the Conservatives have taken the other end of that spectrum. And that, like, look, we'll do the bare minimum, but, like, don't expect more than that. And by the way, it's not even realistic. And the Liberals are trying to march in between the two of that, and, it, you know, they're, they're being punished for it. And I think BC uh, is a reason why uh, you may see, you're, you are seeing uh, the Liberals dip in, in kind of their popularity and in their hope for support in that province. Uh, because if, if the environment is your issue, then, you know, the Liberals, quite frankly, are not providing... Uh, the scale of solutions that's required to hit those emission targets of 50%. So I want to quickly point out that even though the NDP is hitting like 50% target in their plan, their their policy details are basically absent. Like we don't know how they're going to achieve this. Their, their 2021 uh, climate platform includes the same picture of Jagmeet Singh in a canoe that they used in their 2019 climate platform. So that should tell you all you need to yeah, know. Yeah, it does about tell me something. No, well, hold on. That does tell me something. Uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. <laughs> Why are you getting mad? At tr- like, what do you want? You want tr- you want Jagmeet to spend like tons of emissions to go back to that same damn lake and log that canoe over uh, and take that picture again with this photographer. Like, come on. So, I, like, I want to say, like, I mean, reduce, reuse, recycle, but also like reality, right? Like, it's all targets. So everything we're talking about is how ambitious the targets are. When like government's own reports say again, like I'll just repeat it, like it says that we're on track for 19%, not 30, not 50, not 60. Like I actually kind of like the conservatives platform or, or on this piece because I know this is gonna probably vilify me a little bit, but I like that they're putting it in the hand. It's not it's not a choice between affordability or cost of living and carbon taxes, right? He's saying like, we're going to keep it with you. And that's something that it's, it, it becomes, I think, more palatable for a lot of people to accept. And I was working with the, with the BC Liberal government here in British Columbia, which is a coalition government of federal liberals and federal conservatives, just to clarify. Um, but when they brought in a revenue neutral carbon tax in 2009, it was the first one in North America at the time. And I think that that revenue neutrality the fact it was done differently, but the fact that those revenues weren't going into government coffers, but were being uh, sent back to the public and businesses through, through tax cuts in other areas, the same amount that they brought in, I think that made it the reason why a BC Liberal, like a centre-right coalition, was able to bring that in in the first place. People were like, okay, like, we get it. You're not just trying to take our money again. You're trying to like actually like keep the money with us, but do the right thing on the environment. So I actually like it. And then I compare that to the NDP. And like, I actually think their perspective on this is like, seriously nonsensical. 
Like they promise uh, 100% carbon-free electricity by 2050, yet their leader opposes Site C, which is a large hydroelectric dam in BC. Everyone wants people to buy electric vehicles. Nobody wants to have the hard choice of how you're actually going to power those things. And, and usually it's big infrastructure. Wind and runner for river technology just doesn't cut it. Like you need that baseline kind of power to, to keep things going when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, that kind of thing. So there is no easy button on this file. I think Jagmeet Singh likes to pretend there is. I think the liberals like to pretend it's like a little bit of an easy button and a little bit of a hard button. And the conservatives are like, look, we're just being real. So I'm going to defend that. I see your point, and I would love to see details before I decide to. I guess my biggest concern is that there seems to be a lot of contradictions in what is being proposed and what is being executed. And and the, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is oil and gas. And Canada's largest oil and gas lobby's election platform asks for big tax breaks and more direct subsidies so they can increase production. It's 2021 and big oil is still in climate denial in this country. The conservative platform panders to the energy sector a lot. They call them a key driver of the economy. Both the NDP and the Liberals pledge to force the industry to set five-year targets to cut emissions, but do we believe them? They currently emit 26% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. And as has been pointed out during this conversation, Justin Trudeau still touts the Trans Mountain Oil Pipeline and Expansion Project as a way to finance Canada's climate objectives, despite a report from Canada's parliamentary budget officer, which found that the pipeline will only be profitable if Ottawa doesn't take further steps to combat climate change. A recent report from Environmental Defense also points out that the government announced various supports totaling almost $18 billion to the oil and gas sector in just the last year alone. Meanwhile, the government's climate plan has earmarked only $15 billion for climate initiatives over the next 10 years. The IPCC basically announced an end to the status quo for oil and gas. What will it take for Canada's next government to figure things out with the sector? I actually think Canada's oil and gas sector actually has a role to play in supporting reducing emissions elsewhere. And I'm sure you've heard the argument. But at the same time, I think a lot of people want to believe that climate's a local issue, not a global one. And we have to think globally about it. Here, here. So, and this is where I think people might start to disagree with me is BC's LNG, or not BC's, BC and Alberta's LNG sector and, and, and sending our natural gas products to uh, countries like China, where they're building like a zillion coal plants a day, like that can actually reduce global uh, emissions substantially. Like we're talking, I, I, I can't remember the numbers, but it's LNG has like 50% of the emissions of coal. So if you start building those plants and firing them using LNG, you're actually making a real difference globally. So the extraction and the shipping of those products might actually increase our greenhouse gas emissions. But the truth is you're actually making a substantial difference elsewhere. So I do, I think that every time we talk about this, we have to be thinking in that global context, like climate change isn't just a Canada-wide issue. Mm. Well, Murad, we've seen a lot of pension funds divest from Canada's energy sector. Do you agree with Caroline that they do have a role to play in influencing government policy and, and helping reduce emissions? Uh, so I wanted to answer your actual, your original question, because I was just doing the math. The answer to your question, what will it take, is 165,000 jobs in Alberta and Saskatchewan. That's how many people working mining energy, oil and gas in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Does the energy industry as it exists today or, or what it hopes be, I guess, is, is more important, uh, help with the energy transition. I mean, certainly those conversions will help reduce emissions. It's a question of trajectory, right? How long can you continue to do this? How long can those like step changes in emissions reductions, so from core to uh, natural gas, electrifying fleet 
sort of slowly while, as Carolyn says very aptly, I think, thinking about where the energy for that electrification comes from. It isn't an all or nothing thing. And you are seeing companies, you know, adopting technology to become more efficient to reduce their own emissions. I think there is some tension there, though, between regulating them to do that and hoping that they will on their own. You know, no industry sort of welcomes regulation of its operations. But one of the things that has forced energy companies to think about things like carbon capture or scrubbing in their sort of exhaust pipes and stuff like that is regulation, you know, sort of going harder at that question. It's it's in all of the platforms for sure, but, you know, it's not going to go down without a fight. Well, I was going to say what we need is a just transition policy from all the parties with proper job training and resources and funding, which I don't see clearly written down in any of the platforms. But let me just say, because one of the things that happens when a party comes out and says, here's our joined up thinking about how to transition the economy, uh, then we get the sort of scaremongering. It's framed as a uh, as a desire to or a plan to throw thousands of people out of work imminently. It's hard to do joined up thinking when your political opponents are characterizing your efforts as a bad faith attempt to throw people out of work. Yeah, I agree with that. We need to learn how to have better conversations that isn't just like, you're going to destroy jobs. No, you're going to, we're going to create jobs. No, you're going to destroy jobs and, and back and forth forever, which is why my last question is a point of comparison. The United States under Joe Biden is taking more risk on climate than Canada, even though it has failed to get them turned into law due to politics, due to this back and forth that, that Murad is mentioning. Biden has promised to cut emissions by 50% by 2030 and have a carbon-free power system by 2035. His government tried to halt new oil and gas lease sales in federal lands and waters and failed. They tried to integrate climate into a massive infrastructure bill, also failed, again, because of politics. So last question, are we even a leader in climate change anymore? And, And what should we be demanding from our future government on this file? Beyond everything we've talked about, I guess. No, and I think it goes back to the point of like that 50% threshold. And if the likely outcome of this election is going to be either a uh, liberal-led minority government or a conservative-led one, and neither party is as aggressive as even the Biden administration in America is on this. Uh, So I think if the expectation is Canada's going to be a world leader on climate change, I, I don't think so. I I really don't think so. It would have been great if we had a Green Party that could help anchor this debate in in a real meaningful way, but they're not. And and again, that's a disservice to like the general direction of uh, this campaign on climate change, which has been missing to quite an extent to the first three, four weeks of it. Shout out to Anami Paul, who accidentally endorsed the Liberal Climate Plan in a word jumble during a press conference. (laughs) We've all done that mistake, though. We've all done that mistake. (laughs) As always, there is too much going on during the election campaign, so we're going to have a quick, rapid-fire question, which will be more fire than rapid, I'm sure. Um, In the last several days, the Conservatives have flip-flopped on their firearms policy at least five or six times. Their platform says they would rescind a ban on assault-style rifles implemented by Justin Trudeau. During the first French-language debate, Erin O'Toole hinted the ban would stay. He then confirmed this over the weekend. Then he announced a public review of firearms rules that could end the ban on these deadly weapons. Now a footnote has been added to the conservative platform that says, quote, all firearms that are currently banned will remain banned. I am so confused. Jessica, are guns a thing this election and how much should I care? 
<laughs> I think confusion is a key word because are they talking about the 1977 band or are they talking about the 2020 band? Oh, and by the way, we actually have no definition for what an assault style rifle is. It's not a legal classification. No one has any idea what they're talking about. And depending on who you talk to, you get a different answer. A total, total garbage debate right now uh, and full of politics. And it sucks because it's a real issue and something that we do need to talk about in a serious way. Is it going to dominate the election? I don't think so. Other than the fact, and this is way longer than a rapid fire should be, uh, other than the fact that Arnold Two has flip-flopped on it and people don't like inconsistencies from their leaders. The Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs announced their case to the B.C. Supreme Court last Tuesday. They are suing the government of Canada for criminalizing drug users. As a remedy, the association is calling for the decriminalization of all drug possession because of how it's done more harm than good. The opioid crisis surges on. Caroline, where do you see this case going? Will it have an impact on opiate policy with the next government? You know, it's not an area of, of deep uh, knowledge for me, but I will say whatever's being done right now, it's not working. So, you know, the, the number of deaths that we've seen from opioids has been just like extraordinarily high uh, in BC in particular. I don't know about the rest of the country, but I know it's pretty bad everywhere. Uh, what is being done isn't working. And, and if this case goes some way to kind of clarifying ways in which we can actually uh, uh, start addressing this problem in, in real ways, I think that's a good thing. So I'll be following it. And Murad, there won't be any voting booths set up on campuses this federal election. Are we worried this will impede young voters? Yes, but that's why they should be applying for mail-in ballots right now. Deadline is September 14th. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, there's two leaders debate this week. Tell me one thing that you're all going to be watching closely. I'll start. Anime freaking Paul on a national freaking stage. Uh, I'm going to be watching the because the debate runs from 9 to 11 and then by the time I get out of scrums it's going to be 12:30 a.m. So you're just going to be watching it. <laughs> I I will in fact be there watching it. Last time I showed up on TV and it was a terrible shot so I'm like proactively thinking about my look. I still have the <laughs> screenshot. I'm going to pull it out. Please share. Please share. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward like whether this is the moment where Aaron O'Toole can kind of lock in uh, his quote-unquote momentum, which has in fact slowed down uh, in time for this episode. Whether or not Aaron O'Toole actually comes out of this thing, people are like, yeah, you know what, we can give that guy a shot. He's statesman-like. Two things. One of them, um, I'm looking for a plan to actually grow the economy, like not the worker supports and things which are all needed, but a plan to actually drive private sector investment and get people working. That's number one. Number two is I just really want some leader somewhere to just start sneaking in stuff about foreign policy <laughs> since, it, since it's so... Should be a subject uh, in this debate. So uh, we'll see. Amen. Drinking game. Drink every single time they mention a country that is not Canada. And we'll be very sober, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. We'll be back next week. We hope you'll tune in. Please tell us how you're feeling about our episodes, the election, Canada, your life. You can write us at backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If this episode gave you some insight into this hashtag no attention election, share it with someone else who could use some help understanding Canadian politics. There are now officially three election episodes to listen to. Please follow, subscribe, rate, whatever, wherever you listen to podcasts, click something. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Jessica, and where can people find you? At Sandu underscore on Twitter. Murad, where are you? Uh, I'm at thelogic.co and on Twitter at MuradHEM. And Caroline, thank you for your debut on the backbench. Where can people find you and follow your work? 
Uh, they can follow my work uh, at thehub.ca. I'm a contributor there. They can also find me on Twitter. It's at North Van Caroline, but it's N Van Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outhorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. The election is almost over. Stay with us. See you next week. <laughs>